0: Thanks very much. I'm really excited to be here to talk to you today about A-B testing in foreign aid and the cash benchmarking work that GiveDirectly has been running in Rwanda with USAID. For me, this is uh, four years next week since I signed on with GiveDirectly to go to Rwanda and run our first A-B test of foreign aid, benchmarking a nutrition and wash program against cash transfers. Before we even get to foreign aid, I want to go back to the 70s and talk about the investment world, because that's really where the inspiration for this experiment comes from. So in the 70s, if you wanted to invest in stocks and bonds, it was a really expert-dominated industry. You would go to your stockbroker, you would go to your managed fund, and you would give them your money, and they would invest it for you. They would decide what to buy, when to buy it, when to sell, all those sorts of things, and charge you a pretty hefty fee for the privilege of doing it. And then in the 70s, people started coming up with this concept of the index fund. And Paul Samuelson came out and said that at the least, some large foundation should set up an in-house portfolio that tracks the S&P 500 index, if only for the purpose of setting up a naive model against which their in-house gunslingers can measure their prowess. And this was the idea of an index fund, right? That we should compare what an investment advisor returns and costs to you against what would happen if you just track the market, if you just bought a little bit of everything in the stock market. And, uh, and, and so really there's two key concepts in that. The first is looking at whether your investment advisor is actually generating higher returns than if you just invested in a bit of all of the market. And secondly, whether those higher returns are offset by the increased cost of paying that investment advisor. And we can see this concept took a little while to take off. So from 1975, it was 25 years until 2000 when index funds cracked 10% of money under management. But from there, it's really taken off to be 22% of funds under management globally today. And hopefully, for the other 78% of funds that are not in index funds, index funds have led to those, to money being moved from low performing funds managers to high performing funds managers. So then if we move over to the aid sector today, it's a little bit like investment in the 70s. A donor decides that they want to give money for a particular cause, and they go to an expert agency or an expert INGO and give them their money and trust them to implement a program that's going to have the desired impact. Generally, those programs are pretty complex. They involve a lot of layers, they involve a lot of players, and they're pretty expensive to implement. And it's often really hard to know which bits of the process are actually adding value, if any, of them. And so because of that parallel between uh, mutual funds, managed funds, and the aid sector, in uh, 2014, folks started coming out and thinking about, well, can we develop an index fund Uh, for the development sector. Is there something that we can use that's a bit like an index fund? And Chris Blackman, Professor of Development Economics, came out and said, you can think of cash transfers like the index fund of development. And if NGOs, like money managers of the world, can outperform the index funds, then the world becomes a better place. And that led GiveWell in 2016 to incorporate cash transfers as the baseline for cost-effectiveness analysis when they come to recommend charities. And so they will only recommend programs that are robustly more effective than cash transfers. So why should cash transfers be this baseline or this index fund for development? There's four main reasons. The first, as we know, is that cash transfers have a robust evidence base. They work. And the second is they work on a wide variety of indicators so cash transfers don't just move a narrow range of indicators like most programs in development they affect a really wide range of things so not just economic outcomes but education outcomes health outcomes and other things the third reason is because it's really simple so it strips away expertise from the program and, and asks that question is all of this expertise and all of these layers actually adding value beyond what the poor could do for themselves if they were given the money. And lastly, it tells us what recipients value, which I think is, is just really underthought through in the development sector. In investments, it's really obvious. You just want to make as much money as possible. But that's not obvious when it comes to development. One person might prioritize keeping their kids in school longer. Another person mightn't even have kids and they want to fix a health problem. Another person might want to start a business. And a whole lot of people have diverse needs and are going to want to do a whole bunch of different things uh, with the money. So what does it take to implement a benchmark in practice? I think there's three things. The first is we just need more evidence of non cash programs to work out what actually works and what doesn't work at all. And we've come a long way. So in 2000, the top five development journals published zero randomized controlled trials. In 2015, when this, this graph is from, uh, they published over 30. So we've come a long way since 2000. But as we can see in the journals uh, that have Uh, the highest number of publications, the rates of RCTs uh, is still very low. The second thing is that costs matter as well. And we need to measure not just returns of programs, but also costs. And it's easy to say, but it's not very common in practice for people to actually think about the costs of their programs. We just tend to focus on returns if we focus on uh, any outcomes Mm -hmm. at all. And so really simple example here of two nutrition programs where If we just look at returns, Nutrition Program A is a better program. It returns more than Nutrition Program B. But then when we factor in costs and we see that Nutrition Program A is actually a much more expensive program to implement, we see that net returns, so returns less costs, are actually higher in Nutrition Program B. So measuring costs actually leads us to a different conclusion. Instead of programming more of Program A, we should program more of B. And the last thing is that we need to move from individual assessments of programs to comparative assessments. Right now, we'll generally look at a program and we'll look at whether uh, it returns anything, whether it has a positive return. Sometimes we'll look at the things like income, whether over time the program returns more in income than it costs to deliver that program. But we pretty rarely actually go about comparing different programs. And so in this sort of hypothetical, when we compare to nutrition programs against cash transfers as the benchmark, those nutrition programs are both cost effective, right? For a given indicator, they return more than they cost, so they're they're good programs, but they're not as good as cash transfers. And so we should program less of those programs and either program cash in its place, because cash is more cost effective, or we should search for other programs that might do better. And maybe those programs exist, and that's great, and we should program them, or we should Think about how we can refine existing programs to make them better so that they beat the cash benchmark. So then let's move from the theory of benchmarking and then into the practice and what we did in Rwanda. And so in 2015, we received an award from USA and Google.org to conduct an A-B test comparing a child nutrition and water sanitation and hygiene program in Rwanda to cash transfers. And it was a randomized controlled trial uh, led by academics Craig McIntosh and Andy Zeitlin at UCSD and Georgetown in the U.S., with surveying done by Innovations for Poverty Action. It was a 3 arm randomized control trial where there was this Gikariro uh, activity, uh, and we'll talk more about what goes into that in a second. In, and that was implemented by CRS and SNB. And then a second arm, which were cash transfers implemented by GiveDirectly, and then a third control group. So just to talk a little bit about what actually went into this program. Uh, the academics in the paper talk about this being a fairly standard sort of nutrition program and one that USA delivers to 27 million children worldwide each year. It's a program that focuses largely on training. So nutrition schools that teach people about nutrition practices, community health clubs that teach people about hygiene, uh, trying to improve uh, access to latrines and hand washing facilities, farmer field, learning schools, Teaching people about agriculture and farming with some distribution of seeds and small livestock like rabbits, uh, savings and internal lending communities, and then some capacity building as the fifth element of that program. So pretty standard sort of nutrition program that we see in many countries around the world. For the cash transfers, we divided them into two groups. One was small cash transfers that were sized between 41 and 117 dollars. The idea here was that GIKORIRO was a new program, so we didn't know how much it would spend per beneficiary. Uh, but we undertook an ex-ante costing exercise to, to come up with the best estimate of how much that program would cost. And then Directly would spend the same amount of money per beneficiary as CRS and SNB would spend on their beneficiaries, so we'd have cost equivalents. But because it was a new program and we didn't know exactly uh, how much it would cost, we, we sort of split the small transfers into three to come up with a range to make sure that if the ex post cost was different, uh, that hopefully it would still fall within the range. And it did just. Uh, and then the second group were large cash transfers of $532. And for those, we designed them to, to do what we thought would maximize the cost effectiveness of the primary indicators of the program. So, really, two ways of thinking about benchmarking here. One is uh, equivalent amount, equivalent cost of the program. So spending the same amount per beneficiary, and then you can look at, because you've sort of uh, normalized cost, you can then look at which one returns more on a given indicator. The second way of thinking about it is the large transfers, which is saying to both implementing partners, put your best foot forward, do what you think is going to maximize cost effectiveness, and then let's look at which one actually does at the end of the day. It doesn't really matter which one returns more. It doesn't really matter which one costs less. What matters is that ratio, and which one is more cost-effective at the end of the day. And then just one flag: we did have a nutrition label and nudge in this program. So it was an unconditional cash transfer, but there was a nutrition label and nudge uh, to try and encourage people to spend money uh, in ways that would move the primary indicators. So the results. What we saw is that neither the Gikariro program nor small cash transfers had any statistically significant impact on primary indicators uh, in the program, which I think is unsurprising because we're talking about a really small amount of money here, roughly $110 being spent per beneficiary. The Gikariro program moved savings, presumably because it had savings and lending uh, program, uh, program attached to it. And the equivalent cash transfer program led to paying down debt increases in productive assets and increases in consumption assets. But when we look at the large cash transfer programs, we start to see a whole bunch of primary indicators lighting up. So things like consumption and dietary diversity, but then increases in anthropometric measurements, which are really the focus of a nutrition program like this. So height for age, weight for age, middle upper arm circumference, all showing up. And then a whole host of secondary outcomes as well, including a reduction in child mortality. So taking those results, I think the, the study really highlights four tensions in development uh, and, it, and it sort of forces policymakers to grapple with these questions. The first one is quality versus quantity and the trade-off between those two things. Normally in development, we don't even measure outcomes of a program. We measure outputs like the number of people who go through a training program, the number of livestock distributed, those sorts of things. And so it's understandable that the development sector focuses on maximizing those outputs, so putting the greatest number of people through a program that they possibly can. But as this study demonstrates, that often isn't what is going to do the greatest good for the world. You can treat a lot of people with a small amount of cash, but it may not have much impact. The second thing is to measure returns as well as costs. So the Gikariro program spent about 52% on overheads in the program, whereas the equivalent amount of cash transfers spent 20% on overheads. Large cash transfers was far less than that. And so the Gikaro program off the bat was at a disadvantage. It needed to have a far higher rate of return in order to be more cost effective than the equivalent cash transfer program. The third tension this highlights is the difference between recipient preferences and technocrat preferences. And the clearest example of this is when we look at savings and debt. So the Gikariro program had this technocratic preference of increasing savings, and it did that. It did that really well. But when we gave cash to people, the equivalent amount of cash, they didn't save, they paid down debt. And the academics dive into this in the paper and, and conclude that this is because the average rate of interest on savings was 5%. The average rate on debt was 20 to over 60%. And so, by pushing people into savings, the technocrat preference, we may have actually been making people worse off because they couldn't pay down debt that had a higher rate of interest. And the last thing is breadth versus depth. The aid sector is very siloed, typically. There will be a group within a big donor like USAID or DFID focused on education, there will be another one focused on health, another one focused on economic growth, another focused on democracy and governance, and so on. And the education team will just look at education outcomes and focus on programs that move those education outcomes. But how do we make that trade-off uh, between a program like cash that, that, that will move a whole broad range of outcomes and not just those education ones? So if we have a program uh, that moves education outcomes really well, but then a cash program that moves them not as well, but increases uh, consumption and assets and, uh, and improves, uh, improves health, How do we weigh those two things against each other? Uh, And cash really forces us to grapple with that difficult question because people don't have education lives and health lives and democracy lives and economic growth lives. They just have lives, right? They have diverse needs that span a variety of different areas. And the aid sector right now is not particularly well set up to grapple with that. So moving from Rwanda to where we are today, we're conducting five more benchmarking experiments with USAID. The first one is another one in Rwanda, which is, uh, which is a youth workforce readiness program. Uh, implementation of that has concluded, and we're now just waiting for the end line, uh, which will happen towards the end of next year at the 18-month mark. And so hopefully we'll have results from that in late 2019. We've also signed awards uh, with USAID and Good Ventures to undertake cash benchmarking work in Malawi, Liberia, and the DRC. So we have folks on the ground now setting up those operations. Liberia actually started pilot uh, just last week. And uh, the implementation of those RCTs will all happen in 2019 with results expected in 2020 and 2021. And then we're discussing with USA uh, about uh, doing some cash benchmarking work in a fifth country. So I think there's two key takeaways from the experiment that we've run in Rwanda. The first is that cash benchmarking can encourage policymakers to confront difficult questions that they otherwise wouldn't ask of their programs. Should we aim to treat the greatest quantity of people or should we aim to have the highest amount of good? Uh, Should we measure costs or should we just measure returns? Whose preferences matter? And then the second thing is that cash could become the index fund of the development sector because it has a robust evidence base that moves a variety of indicators because it strips away complexity and tests whether expertise is adding value and because it helps us actually understand what recipients want. In conclusion, it took 25 years for index funds to take off and crack 10% of the market. We're about four years into the cash benchmarking experiment now, uh, but we're fortunate that we've started with the world's biggest bilateral donor and that we have plenty more studies in the pipeline. So hopefully uh, we'll keep getting great results in these cash benchmarking studies uh, and can lead to better programming in the development sector. Thank you.
1: So we have uh, one question from the audience asking how you ensure no negative effects for the control groups.
0: So I think that's always a challenge in a randomized control trial that the control group is someone who misses out on both interventions in, in this sort of program. And I think that the best thing that you can do in those circumstances is to treat the control group once the evaluation window has closed. So that's something that happened uh, in this study that at the one year mark, uh, CRS has treated the control groups in this study. I think it would have be been great to have been able to keep the study open for longer. Unfortunately, uh, it wasn't possible, but I think that it's good for the control group who did actually end up receiving
1: one of the programs. Yeah, and um, sort of relatedly, can you speak about uh, the control group? Are they people who are interacting with members who were getting cash transfers? And yes. so what does that mean?
0: Yeah, so this was a study randomized at the village level, um, and so there were not people within a village who were in the control group, so everyone in the village who was eligible or uh, either program received that program and the folks uh, in the control group were in different villages. So, um, you know, minimizing the interaction between those groups to the extent possible.
1: Um, also, you were pointing out that um, the USAID program tried to affect savings and congrats to them. They did affect savings, but they, they seemed to neglect things that people cared about. Um, it seems like similarly, um, you could uh, fail to affect uh, long-term um, things that aren't captured well in a benchmark you know lifetime earnings or something. Um, is this something that you you know try to account for when you're doing a study like this that's you know very time constrained. Yeah it's, 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 it's hard because
0: if you want to really track long-term things properly you're going to keep the control group open um, and, and so you know, it gives you better data but it has potentially a negative effect on the control group not receiving that, that treatment um you know i think it would have been great to, to keep it open longer and look at those long-term things it, it just wasn't possible with promises that have been made to government of rwanda uh, by the implementers in this program to to roll out the GIFRA program to all of the eight districts by a certain uh period of time yeah so i you know unfortunately this is not one of those programs where we could measure things in, in the long term it would be great to do that and you know we have studies underway um like the general equilibrium study that's going to come in january that it desired to look into the long-term that's um, yeah, not possible in right. Um
1: Yeah, so you had some primary indicators and then some secondary indicators. How do you decide what's primary and
0: what's secondary? Yeah, so I think it's, a, I think it's in, in some ways a little arbitrary because all, all of these indicators matter, right? It's not like child mortality is less important than consumption, but, it, but it's a secondary indicator. Um, it's just a, a back and forth between uh, both the implementers and the academics to kind of work out a short list of things to focus on, because I guess if you, if you expand from a list of five to a list of 30 or something like that, as your primary indicators, then it's, it's hard to tell your program to actually try and move those primary indicators. I, I do think it is a little artificial, right? Because, because people do have really diverse needs, and by focusing in on five indicators, you're, you're narrowing the subset of things that, um, that you're trying to move in a particular program. And that is one
1: of the greatest benefits of cash that it allows recipients not just to focus on those primary indicators, but to focus on Um, As a final question, um, as you said, in the financial market, uh, ideally by having index funds, you get some people who were formerly financial advisors who are no longer advising the same portfolios. Um, Do you expect a similar effect? And maybe have you already seen this with programs shutting down that find they're less effective than
0: yeah, great question. I think it's early days, and so I don't know what uh, you've seen. A lot of programs shutting down. Um, I think the GIGARERO program is currently being reviewed, but the changes that can be made, and we've heard that the, the WASH component of the is going to be changed, um, which is a good outcome, I think, from, from this study. Uh, I think we will see more of it over time as this, as this rolls out within USA, and we're in our discussions with USA about how they can best use the results of these benchmarking studies. Um, to make sure that first day they just program um, better, better programs for day one, and second, they address programs that are underperforming. Uh,
1: with that, thank you so much. Thanks very much.